What do Christians pray for in this fifth petition? In the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, Christians pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all their sins, which they are more, the more readily encouraged to ask, because by his grace they're enabled from the heart to forgive others. As usual, I'll break this down into some questions. The first is this, what is a debt in this petition? Is Jesus teaching about economic equity? No, he's not. A debt in this petition is sin. What is a debt in this petition? It is a sin, or perhaps more precisely, it's the just guilt and penalty earned by our sin. Now we know this for several reasons. First, in Luke 11.4, which is the other account of the Lord's Prayer, the fourth petition is given as follows. Forgive us our sins, and there is the usual word for sins, not debts. For we also forgive those who are indebted to us. That's the same word used for debts in Matthew 6. So debts and sins are clearly parallel words in this prayer context. Secondly, the commentary that Jesus makes in verses 14 and 15 confirms this. He talks about forgiving trespasses, right? That's clearly parallel to debts. And then thirdly, sin is compared to debt in the scripture in several very notable texts. One of them is over in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. And this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember this? Peter comes up and says, probably with an exasperation in his voice, how often will my brother sin against me? and I forgive him. Jesus probably could have said, oh, maybe once on a good day for you, Peter. But he doesn't answer him realistically in terms of Peter's capacity. He, he answers him basically as many times as it takes. Seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven. And he gives a, par a parable which talks about the forgiveness of sins. And it's all done in terms of debts. The servant owes a huge debt to the king. And so this is one of the places where debts are notably compared to sins. The other is over in Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. where the sinful woman is forgiven. Remember, a flask is broken and she uh, reclining bathes him and kisses Christ with her tears and, and washes his feet. And, and in all of this, um, he's asked a question 
about this sinful woman? Why does he allow someone this sinful? And Jesus answers by describing sins in terms of debts again. So the plain teaching is that God will not forgive us our debts or our sins if we do not practice forgiveness. The forgiveness of debts is the forgiveness of sins. Both the wicked woman and the righteous Simon owed for their sins. And so Christ calls sins debts. Why? Well, because that's what sins are. Sins make spiritual debts. Calvin calls sins debts because we owe a penalty for them. Fisher, the catechist, says, sins are called debts because of the debt of punishment we owe to the justice of God on account of them. John Flavel, the late Puritan, our sins are a non-payment of what is due to God, a non-performance of our duty. So when we don't obey God's law, we sin, we incur debt, now the penalty of which is death and imprisonment in hell. Now it would be wise, I think, in our day to reflect on the fact that Christ used the word debt here instead of the word of sin with its associated guilt and penalty. Debt is something that Americans can relate to easily. Economically, they are quite familiar, even comfortable, with the concept of debt. But spiritually or theologically, this idea that sin is a debt is largely forgotten. There's very little thought given to sin today, and when it is thought of, it's typically kept in the domain of interpersonal relationships or psychology. This deterioration has been going on for some time. Even a generation ago, a man could write a book entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? Well, in the 35 years or so since then, it's only disappeared more. Many people at the everyday level actually think that sin is determined by whether we feel guilt or not. In other words, whether an act strikes us as wrong or not. This is part of the, the broad cultural redefinition of words, whereby whatever my internal state feels or senses about it is what's most real or true. So I may outwardly be a male, but if I feel female inside, then my true self is female. Or if my sexual orientation is felt a certain way, well then that's what it is. So if I feel like I've sinned against you, well then maybe I have. But if I don't feel it or sense it, there's no sense of guilt, well then I haven't. It's become very subjective.
They say sin is relative to our situation. Some, and I'm being ironic here, especially advanced men, even talk about the, quote, problem of guilt. Now, by that, they don't mean that men have a problem with an offended God. The problem is that people have difficulties with each other, and that's what's most important. Usually, it's because a person's thinking poorly about themselves, and so he's causing himself all kinds of trouble. You know, this is a false guilt. It's lack of peace. It causes marital anxiety, poor self-esteem, troubled relationships, perhaps even the consideration of suicide. So sin and guilt are problems to many today, but only subjectively, only internally. We have become so self-absorbed as a people that we think of sin only in terms of ourselves and sometimes other men and women. And then only when either sin hurts us or we feel guilty. In practical terms today, for many, sin is not a debt. It's simply a personal problem to be dealt with by the psychologist or counselor. But Jesus' use of the word debt here forces us to understand that sin and guilt have an objective reality. Sin and guilt are so real it doesn't matter if you deny they exist, they still exist. They exist because God and his law exists. And when men break that law, they sin. Right? What does John say? What is sin? It's not keeping God's commandments. It's the breaking of the law. It's trespassing. <coughs> And when, they, when men sin, they become indebted. They have to pay for their sin. Again, debt to Americans is very real. Not just in their minds, but they do, at least usually, consider it an item of objective reality. They look at a credit card statement, and they see that they owe $12,000. They look at the monthly payment. They see the 17% or higher interest rate and the late penalty. And those are felt not only perhaps painfully in their minds, that is, subjectively, but the debt is recognized to be real outside of themselves. It has an objective existence. Few would say, well, I don't feel that debt, so I don't owe it. That kind of thinking will get your car repossessed. Debt is objectively real. It is still owed, even if you die, in many cases. <laughs> so Americans know that economic debt has an existence outside of themselves, and what we come face to face with in this prayer is that spiritual debt has an existence outside of ourselves. There is in the world an objective, real guilt debt from objective that is real sin. Christ says we owe it. And we owe it whether we like it or not, whether we feel it or not, whether we want it to be that way or not. 
you and I by our sins have accrued spiritual debt to God and to other men, and it must be paid. We have, as it were, a spiritual credit record, and it's filled with one sin obligation after another. We're in debt. There are numerous ways to categorize sin, omission or commission, sins of error, sins on purpose, great sins, small sins, but they all have this in common. They all incur objective guilt. So you don't so much feel guilt as have guilt. You are guilty. Now, you may feel that or not, you may be aware of that or not, but that's the truth, whether you feel it or not. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, our sins earn something for us. They earn us eternal punishment. So we have a penalty to pay when we sin, whether we feel it or not, whether we get caught by other human beings or not, whether our conscience is troubled or not, whether we agree or not. We are debtors. Now, it's true that we should desire a clean conscience, that is, a felt or subjective sense of forgiveness. This is taught throughout the Bible. Psalm 40 and verse 12, my sins have overtaken me. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within, within me. We pray for our sins to be pardoned and we pray, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But we shouldn't define sin's guilt only or even mainly as something we feel. We can be so corrupted, we don't feel correctly. It's something real and objective that we owe, and this prayer starkly reminds us of that. That's one of the great beauties of this table. The debt is paid, is what that table announces loudly. Well, who are the debtors? Who are we in debt to when we sin? Well, two groups are in view. All men to God and men to each other. All men to God and to each other. First, we can be in debt to men. From the text, it's clear that men can be in our debt in a similar way that we are to God. Men can owe us for their sins. There are two tables of the law, and we can sin against not only God, but men as well. For Samuel 2.25, if a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. Vincent puts it this way, men come into our debt when they injure us in our persons, names, families, estates, or souls. And Romans 13.8 reminds us not to keep unpaid debts of any kind to our fellow men but to keep performing the perpetual obligation to love them. So we can be in debt to men. We can also be in debt to God. From the text, it's clear that men can owe God for their sins. In fact, men are not just in debt to him. 
but they're poor to the point of being utterly bankrupt. We have no works money to pay the rightful law debt that we owe him. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Luke 7, 42, We're like the two debtors in Christ's story who, quote, had nothing to pay. We clearly cannot pay our debts, and we aren't worthy of having them forgiven. So how can we pray this prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray? On what basis can we pray this? And that brings us to question three. Why should God forgive our debts? The short answer is because of the work and worth of Christ. The answer is for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. You see, he has the merit because he answered all the demands of the law and justice against our sin debt by living and dying in our place. Since the penalty due for our guilt was death, Christ had to die. Hebrews 9.22 makes this clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness. But Christ did meet the law's demands to be able to fully pay our debt. He was our complete satisfaction. And so he gained for us the pardon mentioned in the answer. 1 John 2.2, 2, Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He turns away God's wrath. He died to expiate our guilt, to satisfy divine justice. Amen. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That verse pictures us once in debtor's prison, but now released by Christ's full payment for us. We are bankrupt. Well, Christ was our bail. He got us out. He is our solvency. By the merit of his death, he paid our debt, and so we are pardoned from the guilt and penalty of our sins. So this is why God should forgive our debts, not because of anything in us, but because of the work and worth of Jesus Christ. The answer says that this is a free pardon. But if Christ paid our debts, how is it free then? The answer says it's for Christ's sake, but at the same time, it says God will freely pardon us. Well, it's free in this sense. He graciously chose Christ to be our substitute. God didn't have to save any one of us. Certainly not all of us. But once he decided to save a people, there was only one way he could do it. He had to send himself and save his elect. Some might say if Christ paid the debt, God had to release us. So it wasn't free, it was necessary. Well, in a sense that's true, but God was obligated 
and he was free in two different senses. And they're not opposed to one another. We see them together in Romans 3.24. We are justified freely, that is, we're declared innocent, forgiven. Freely, but it's by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God had to accept perfect sacrifice, but of course he didn't have to send Christ for us. So it was both free, but once he chose to do it, necessary in its pardon. The freedom is seen in Romans 9.15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And in Isaiah 43.25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. It is the prerogative of God to forgive debts. That was his free choice in accordance with his gracious nature. But praise his name, he chose to do so in Christ, sending him to pay for our guilt. Question five is how many sins how many debts does God forgive? How many debts does God forgive? The short answer is every sin of his elect. Every sin. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 9.28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Hebrews 10, 14, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Micah 7, 18 and 19, who is a God like you who pardons sin <coughs> and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? How many? You will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The promise of the new covenant found in Jeremiah 33 is, I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion. 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all or every sin. Colossians 2.13, he forgave us all our sins. Psalm 103.3, he forgives us all our sins. And it did have to be all or nothing, didn't it? One flaw in a diamond destroys the value of the whole diamond. So the guilt of one sin, if it remains in us, we're liable to everlasting punishment as the payment of our debt to an infinitely holy God. So God forgives all of our sins. He pays all of our debts. Well, question six. What grace does this prayer assume? Christ assumes that the one praying this prayer has the grace of an active and sincere forgiving spirit. The grace of an active and sincere forgiving spirit. The person who is 
truly mouthing this prayer has a heart of mercy. Mercy exercised from a love to God who paid our own greater debt. It has to be genuine. Matthew 18.35 plainly teaches that we must forgive our brother from the heart. We cannot remember, bring up, harbor grudges, say it in word but not mean it in life or spirit. And this mercy has to be actively lived out. James 2.13 Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And of course, in the verses at the end of our reading, we saw that our forgiving others is a condition of God forgiving us. It's not that our showing mercy merits forgiveness, but it does prove the reality of our own pardon. Whoever has truly experienced the cleansing of God will gratefully love God and will act like him. How can you be a child of God and not do the works of your father? One of which is to forgive those who sin against you. True Christians forgive others. And here's the hard part. Pastor, I thought it was hard enough already. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> That's why it takes the supernatural work of God. That's why it's a mark of a Christian. Because you can't do this by yourself. You even have to forgive your enemies. True faith works love toward others. Now this should be easy for us. Because even if someone sins against us 70 times 7, our sins against God are innumerable. Our sins against God are, if we were to describe them in biblical imagery, not a few talents. They are the 10,000 talents. They're the unpayable debt. They're not the speck of dust. They're the log. <laughs> they're not gnats. They're camels. And men's sins to us are as pennies, specks, and gnats. But not every human being does this. And even some who do don't do it well. And so we should be warned by this condition. Because this really is a condition here. Christ is, is quite clear. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. If we live in hatred when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are praying for our damnation. If you pray this prayer with an unforgiving heart, you're saying, God, do to me what I'm doing to this person who sinned against me. Oh, and I'm hating them and I'm not being merciful, and I'm, so please do that to me. The little word as is the difference between heaven or hell. Matthew Henry, those that come to God for the forgiveness of their sins against him must make conscience of forgiving those who have offended them, else they curse themselves 
when they say the Lord's Prayer. You see, an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. And this model prayer urges us to ask for help in this area. Well, seventh, uh, the seventh question and the, and the final one. What results are evident from this grace at work? Obviously, one benefit is forgiving others. But what, what results are evident from this grace at work? Well, first of all, if we are forgiving others, then we, we are encouraged to ask for forgiveness. We ought to actually hope that God will forgive us. Because if he has so worked in us this gracious disposition of mercy, we know it's a work of God. Well, that, that points to the fact that he has forgiven us. And so we ought to be confident. We ought to be encouraged to ask for forgiveness. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 126, calls this, quote, the witness of his grace in us. This witness persuades and supports and urges our hearts to ask for pardon. So, brothers and sisters, has God enabled you to forgive? Oh, yes, imperfectly, but truly forgive others? Well, then do not hesitate to run to your Heavenly Father because that's an evidence that He will forgive you. And then secondly, let's remember that God will forgive us. You know, often we, we hear people say, um, or I hear people say, one of my favorite parts of the worship service is the prayer of repentance and the reminder of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Um, this, of course, would have been very commonly done in, in the history of the church, but it's not now, and, and so much so that sometimes people will say, if you're Christians, why are you still asking? Why are you still asking God to forgive you? Well, of course, there's a sense in which we're not asking God to forgive us for our justification. But we have more than just a record problem. We have a heart problem. We have a relationship problem. And we want our Heavenly Father to know that we are sorry for our sins. And we, we want Him to know that just because He's our Father, the sins still count. We, we understand that. And this, this particular lesson doesn't really deal with all the ways we could answer that question. But let's just be very, very clear. Jesus is teaching believers to ask for forgiveness for their sins. I hope that's just plain right on the text. So even if you don't understand me all the reasons why or how that fits with this other doctrine, do it anyway because Jesus taught us to. That will be for your good. If we rightly know ourselves, we understand that we are not natively merciful. We're envious. We're uh, much more interested in retribution than we are forgiveness. So if God has worked this to some measure within us, brothers and sisters, God will forgive you. So go to him during the week and sincerely when we go to him together, go to him because God will forgive us.